0: Well, this is number 14 in the series, More Than Enough, and I know we've got a few visitors in here, so let me do a brief catch-up, and for those of you that haven't been here maybe in a Sunday or two, just let me remind you that God introduced himself to his covenant partner, first covenant partner, Abram, as El Shaddai. And throughout the Old Testament, he uses that name uh, to define himself. And the word El Shaddai in the Hebrew means all-sufficient one or more than enough. And in inter- introducing himself to you know, the Old Covenant that way and the New Covenant, and we'll see some of those verses if you haven't already, as more than enough, he reveals himself Uh, to be a covenant partner who wishes to do just that. That's his nature. There is no limit in God. And when we say enough, oh, Lord, it's enough if I just can get these bills paid. or Oh, Lord, uh, you know, this is all I need. And we put a limit on it, we say enough. We're closing him out of what he says he wants to be to us. He wants you to continue growing, and it's a lifelong process, into always having more than enough so you can abound to any good work He may send your direction. Mm-hmm. And so we're really cutting off ministry to the earth that God can do through us when we say enough. Yeah. And of course, uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, the Lord tells us, that the Jews, and this is, of course, the old covenant that God cut with Abram. Uh, the Jews are our example; the children of Israel are our example, uh, and even our admonishment. Those upon whom the ends of the world are come, it says there, meaning the end of the church age, which will, you know, be the millennial, be followed by the millennial reign of our Lord. Uh, of course. That's us. And the word is saying, for us that are living in this day, in this time, as a part of the new covenant, need not only to see the children of Israel as our example, but God admonishes us to follow that example. And we've been doing so over a lot of weeks now by looking first at their deliverance from captivity. Captivity is synonymous with lack. And they had lack magnified, they didn't even have enough to do what their captors told them to do. And then after that deliverance from captivity, the first step toward your land of more than enough. Every believer in here has a land that flows with milk and honey, a promise of God, the perfect will of God. It's called different things in the Bible. But it's a place where God can be El Shaddai where he can bring you more than enough, and that, inco- that covers every area of human experience, not just finances, more than enough in every area. That's what he says he is to you and to me, and when we are moving in that direction, it's a lifelong journey. We first move out of captivity to the world, as that is what, is demonstrated by Israel's deliverance from Egypt. Egypt was the world of that day. And so it's our deliverance from captivity to the world. And there are still Christians that have actually entered covenant with God that remain in captivity. Captivity to worldly ideas, worldly influences, the world system. Uh, But once deliverance from captivity is Experience, then you enter the wilderness phase. And just as captivity is synonymous with not enough, the wilderness phase, a phase where it may not seem like we have the direction that we need to get to our land of promise. There, There may be a lot of questions as you grow in God, but he'll show himself to you. He'll demonstrate himself strong to you. It's also called the land of just enough. So from not enough to just enough, and then of course as you transition from the wilderness phase into the land of Canaan, your land of Canaan, your land that flows with milk and honey, we see other principles involved that are going to illuminate uh, this journey, this phase of the journey that we're all going to be taking. And that's where we've been for the last few weeks since the children of Israel did Uh, come to the Jordan, and across the Jordan lay Jericho. A generation died off after 40 years, never having made it to the land of promise. But the new generations raised up under Joshua's leadership uh, were a different story. They are our example of once we have identified and begun moving into our uh, land of Promise, the perfect will of God for our life. There are going to be some lessons that have to be learned in that regard. First few Sundays, we talked about the development of certain character qualities being a prerequisite to enter in, to enter into more than enough. And the character qualities the Bible continues making an emphasis on are strength and courage. Be strong and of a good courage. Be strong and courageous over and over again. And These are character qualities that can be learned. Nobody's born strong and courageous. It takes both to overcome the obstacles to the promise of God for your life. Strength or ability to overcome, but fear to face the obstacle uh, doesn't get the job done. Having the courage to face the opposition but not the strength to overcome doesn't get the job. It takes both elements. And so we talked about developing these character qualities at length. If you weren't here, you should pull down from the archives that, that particular sermon and get caught up. Last Sunday, we talked about uh, also the need for understanding Authority and responding properly to it as a prerequisite to entering your land, whether it be corporately or individually. If you don't relate properly to authority figures, and of course, this includes many areas of our life it could be parental uh, or family, it could be vocational, you know, the people that you work for, the managers above you, it can be civil authority, it can be spiritual authority. Uh, which is where we spent some time uh, understanding these things, is an imperative to being able to relate properly to authority. And, you know, that is a must to enter into your land of promise. Then we looked at, I said there were five points of preparation. We looked at the first three. There needs to be a physical and spiritual nourishing or nourishment that will prepare you for your journey. And it's an ongoing thing. You don't eat one meal and not eat again for a month. You ingest with regularity what's needed to physically accomplish a task, uh, you know, ongoing tasks at hand. Well, it's the same with the Word of God. There needs to be a continual uh, soaking up of the Word of God, taking in of the Word of God to strengthen you spiritually. So we saw that there is nourishment as a first step to making any kind of meaningful journey. And then secondly, we see in the preparation uh, arena, you need to know what the direction is. And thirdly, you need to know the timing. And we took this from their example. You know, when Joshua told them to prepare, you know, it was in all of these areas. And then, of course, uh, numbers four and five are what we'll be talking about today in terms of preparing, preparing for your destiny, preparing for this grand thing that God has planned for you that I hadn't seen and ear hadn't heard, preparing for the perfect will of God for your life, your land that flows with milk and honey. Let's look at Joshua chapter two and we'll begin reading here. Verse 1, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out of Shaddam two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, there came men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thine house, for they be come to search out all the country. And the the woman took the two men and hid them, and said thus, There came men unto me, but I wist not whence they were. And it came to pass about the time of the shutting of the gate, when it was dark, that the men went out. Whither the men went, I wot not. Pursue after them quickly, for you shall overtake them. But, but she had brought them up to the roof of the house and hid them with the stalks of flax which she had laid in order upon the roof. And the men pursued after them the way to Jordan unto the fords. And as soon as they which pursued after them were gone out, they shut the gate. And before they were laid down, she came up into, uh, unto them upon the roof. And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Now therefore I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord, since I have showed you kindness, that you will also show kindness unto my Father's house and give me a true token And that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brethren, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. And the men answered her, Our life for yours, if you utter not this our business. And it shall be when the Lord hath given us the land, that we will deal kindly and truly with thee. Then she let them down by a cord through the window, for her house was upon the town wall. She dwelt upon the wall. And she said unto them, Get you to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you, and hide yourselves there three days until the pursuers be returned, and afterward may you go your way. There are two points in this account that I think need to be emphasized. I mean, there are more things that could be said. A lot has been taught about Rahab over over the years, a lot of good stuff. But we're talking about the final two points of preparation before you begin, uh, you know, this phase of your journey into the land of more than enough. The first we see very clearly in verse 1. You know, he sent two guys out to spy out the land. And he said, uh, you know, go view the land, even Jericho. And so it says very simply to us, Wherever you think, your, whatever direction you think your land of promise may lie in, whatever you think uh, the highest and best for, God's li- uh, for your life, God's will is. And you know these things, we've talked about them in, in times past, but the strongest desires of your heart that are not inconsistent with the principles of God's word, the Bible says God gave you these desires. He'll begin orienting his, you toward his will for your life by just listening to what's in here. And essentially, uh, you can always, I think, corroborate, you know, the rightness of that direction with your natural gifting, spiritual gifting, because those things are going to be there as equipping for the journey you're to take. And when you've identified. Uh, you know, the direction you're to go, whether it's start a business or go into the military or, you know, raise your family. Uh, Whatever it may be, you need to spy out the land. You need to identify the challenges, the obstacles, the resistance that you're likely to encounter on this journey so God can begin preparing you to overcome these obstacles give you revelation about how to. Just as surely as the captain of the Lord's host appeared to Joshua standing outside the walls of Jericho. When you've spied out your land, you've done your homework. And a lot of people don't like this this part of it. They'd rather say, you know, well, I never liked reading that much. Or I don't like studying that much. Look, this is your life we're talking about here. If you feel a desire to Take your life in a certain direction. Then there's going to be all kinds of educational processes, preparation, perhaps uh, just understanding certain business principle, or you know, learning about the challenges you're going to face so you can be getting ready for them. You need to do that, and this is not something I'm going to spend a lot of time on because I've already talked about this earlier. But if you're serious about pursuing these desires in your heart, then get off your blessed assurance and start learning what you're going to be facing and just, you know, you can stop saying, Lord, I just wish you would open my door. He's not going to open my door if you're going to walk through it and fall off a cliff. You know, you need to know what's out there. Do what you can to, to acquire knowledge, intelligence about Uh, you know, what it is you want to do. And that's the fourth point of preparation. We've already talked about it in more depth in an earlier sermon in this series. You know, when spies went out under Moses, I talked about this a little bit as well. I think the fifth and last point is the major lesson uh, that I'm going to take from the verses that I read this morning. It's what God emphasized to me. And it very simply is this that God will always provide key relationships in your life that will lay the foundation of success in taking your land. He will always provide key relationships, just like he provided Rahab for these two spies. And it was through Rahab that he brought not only protection from the other inhabitants who were looking for him, but delivered them from the hand of that king so they could return to their company with the information that was needed. And so God provided Rahab, well, you can rest assured, he'll provide each one of us along our life's journey toward the land of promise that we're uh, moving toward. Uh, He will always provide key relationships that will enable success if you identify that key relationship and if uh, you you do some things that I guess you could call due diligence on your part. But essentially, um, the relationship emphasis is one that I just don't want you to miss because everything that has happened to me in my life that has advanced the purpose of God uh, or brought greater measure of his blessings into our lives, have always involved other people. There have always been other people that God brought me into relationship with that, that enable things to happen, enabled obstacles to be overcome. You know, and I could sit here the rest of the service and just line them up and give you the testimonies over the last 38 years of this ministry you know how that uh, how that has been shown true over and over again, and so you, your success is going to be unattainable. You will never know God as more than enough without these relationships being in place. So there's some things we need to know, and accordingly, uh, things we need to do to position our lives for God to. Bring these relationships to us and for us to relate properly to them. Be able to identify uh, these, relation, these really important key relationships when they come and relate properly to them. Because they'll always be part of the journey that you make. So there's some things we need to know and do. And I think one of the first things would have to be putting more of a premium on cultivating relationships than most people do. Most people get comfortable with two, three, four, five comfortable relationships. I think uh, you know studies have shown that the average sphere of influence exerted by uh, an individual is seven other people. I guess that would, you know, that would be where you maxed out your relationship. Uh, if you're average, uh, your relationship, important relationships, I guess we, we would say, you know, probably more than half of them are family. And there may be one or two good friends, something like that. But I think if we are going to uh, hasten our progress down the path of the will of God, we can, by being more proactive about meeting people, interacting with people, cultivating relationships and it means we have to get out of our comfort zone a little bit because it's always you know a little uncertainty involved in introducing yourself to someone or meeting someone or going to a strange place where you don't know anyone Uh, I mean there are always some discomforts the easiest thing to say is well I'll just I'll just I'll let my wife do that or I'll You know, I'll just pass on that. I'm introverted. I'm not much of an extrovert. I'm more comfortable at home by myself. These are mistakes in my opinion. And uh, I think that one of the exhortations that Scripture makes to us in Hebrews when it says not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together has to do with putting relationships in place that God needs to take you to your land of promise. And of course, you know, don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together. Doesn't mean just get with any old Christian that lives on your block. He's talking about where he's assigned you. The word assemble implies there's a place you fit where you need to be assembled together like a, what do they call them, erector set. You may not be that old, but... uh, (laughs) Uh, building blocks, whatever, there's a place for you to be. And so don't fail to assemble or come together where God has called you to a particular company. This is one of the things that uh, church is intended to serve, you know, is to bring people together with the kinds of gifts and anointings and understandings all predicated on the principle of God's Word that others would need in order to achieve their destiny. And those others out there include people that you may need to, you know, see your destiny come to pass. Yes. And so understanding the importance of relationships is huge. And of course, I think that uh, there are two principal building blocks to successful relationships. And you probably could guess what they were because I've preached these things for a long time. But the first is the love of God. That is uh, the primary relational mandate. And this isn't a hug and a kiss. You know, that's phileo or eros, a different kind of love. But the word agape means give. The people that you give to, well, I don't know what you mean, pastor. I don't, I don't know. What, what do I give to somebody? Well, just give them a little courtesy. Give them a smile. Yeah. Give them an ear. Give them acceptance. Amen. Give them encouragement. You can give a person a whole lot in the first five minutes of conversation, you know, in the ways that I just mentioned. Now, as a relationship grows, you may be able to give in a more specific, practical way. Maybe financial, maybe training, maybe, you know, a partnership in a joint venture. I don't know. But you start out a successful relationship by always giving. When you go someplace where there are people and they're, you know, maybe a little uncomfortable uh, and you'd rather stay at home and be by yourself, you think about it before you go there and put a smile on your face, because you're giving nobody anything but sour grapes if you go in there looking like you do now. <laughs> put a smile on your face, and when you when you see somebody, don't avert your eyes. Look them in the eye and say, "Hey, man, I'm Mac. Who are you?" Good hey, good to meet you. And, Did you hear this joke, Joel? Uh, uh, You know, whatever. (laughs) Whatever your anointing is. That's my anointing. But anyway, seriously, these are things that uh, we all need to be better schooled in and more conscious and aware of. Go where people are. Give them an ear. Give them the courtesy of listening to them before you spew out everything you want to say about Moi, you know? Um, I could really get off track with a lot of this, but I'm going to try to stay tight to the schedule here. Uh, basically, just start putting a premium on relationships and go places where you can make them and know that love is always the foundation of and primary connection to a good relationship with somebody else. But there's a second element that I think is key to the kind of relationship God can use, and that's trust. So you're going to have to be conscious of trust building. Love is the way you build the bridge to another person, but they don't know you yet, and before there's going to be anything meaningful either of you can do for the other, there has to be mutual trust. And so how do you become a trust builder? Well, the the biggest thing is to realize that the kind of depth you want to be able to trust another person in only comes over time. When when they have observed consistently your behavior, your character, the way you react, uh, you know, over time, Your consistency will bring a trust that they really do know who you are and that you can be counted on. And, of course, uh, there's short-term trust. And I almost hesitate to mention this because it can be used wrongly. But self-disclosure early in a relationship to the right degree can be a way to build short-term trust. Uh, you know, the reason I hesitate to emphasize that too much is it can be become a relationally destructive thing if if it's you just gush all over somebody things that are inappropriate about you after ten minutes. Have you ever met somebody? And ten minutes later, you, you say, "Whoa, wait! I don't want to hear about that." I mean, it's like. Uh, that's the extreme, but uh, a, less, a lesser tendency would be you know, self-disclosure would give a talker or someone that likes to talk about themselves an excuse to do more of it, and that's also not good. I mean, just giving somebody your spiel, your life's history, and, uh, you know, but never even asking them much more than what's your name. Uh, Says things to them about who you're most concerned about, and uh, that's not a good idea. So, you know, but self-disclosure can be valuable in building short-term trust if they see your honesty through it, and you have a point you need to reveal to them that you didn't have to reveal, but it would be good for them to know, not digging down into all of the morass that of, of... wrong things that may be there but then as time passes more and more disclosure can be entered into in an an appropriate way and I think a person that thinks about this for more than five seconds can understand that. You get to be with somebody for a few weeks then you can tell them more about yourself than you did when you met them. You know uh, and these are important understandings but the greatest enemy of trust is one of the more common practices, according to studies that have been done, among all people, and that is to lie. Because if you don't tell the truth, and you know most people, you'd ask them, are they truthful? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I tell the truth in love. I tell the truth. And, but most people don't. I mean, truth can be shaded in a way that seems okay to you. But, you know, if you're not uh, telling the truth, for whatever reason, you didn't want somebody to see something about you that wasn't too attractive, so you made yourself sound a little better, or you felt like if you shaded the truth just a little bit, then they would be more inclined to do something else you would want them to do. I mean, the list goes on. Most people are not truth-tellers the majority of the time. Maybe on the big subjects. I didn't kill anybody today. I didn't steal anything yesterday. A whole week's gone by, uh, you know, but since I did something really bad. Well, the truth is what sets a relationship free. That's what the Bible says. The truth sets you free. It will set a relationship free. Lies will destroy trust. And a meaningful relationship is impossible, you know, so you know that has to be something that that we think about more long term, because a lot of lies you know seem insignificant, you know uh you didn't want to hurt somebody's feelings, so you lied you know about uh whatever, maybe you were fifteen minutes late, supposed to call them, I don't know, whatever, and you didn't, and so to you know. So you don't hurt the feelings, you just say, well, I I got tied up doing this or that or the other. Let me tell you, lies always get revealed. At some point, somebody's going to uncover you, you know. They won't know it, maybe, but maybe they will. I've uncovered a few on purpose, uh, which is not exactly love, but... uh, (laughs) I occasionally, about once a month, make a mistake like that, but you should have laughed at that. But basically, uh, it is important that the little lies begin to be given attention because you know people will realize that that's the case. They'll realize it, and you just you will. The Holy Spirit reveals truth. And when you're with somebody enough and they're not being truthful, you'll know it in here. And that undermines trust. So think long term. It may not seem like that little lie made any difference, you know, but for this moment in time. But all those little things add up and eventually, you know, years down the road when God needs to use them in a supernatural way to open a door for you, There's not going to be any trust there for that to occur. So think strategically. Think long-term. Trust is built long-term. Lying or shading the truth, whatever, how you want to refer to it, is the enemy of trust. And so I spent more time on this one than I intended to. But being proactive in cultivating relationships and recognizing that the building blocks of good relationships that God can use are love and trust. And you need to place an importance on each of those things. Uh, Secondly, you need to understand the difference between relationship and fellowship. You know, we hear a lot about, you know, uh, believers and unbelievers Having no concord or no fellowship. Because mm-hmm. the Bible does say that. Uh, and the word there, fellowship, means sharing of heart. The reason you don't want to open your heart to somebody who is an unbeliever is because that means their influence will begin to affect your life. And so the people that you open your heart to, that you form more than casual relationships with, that's fellowship. You know, need to be like minded believers. In other words, they need to have the same value system and principle of life as you do before that exchange begins, that heart exchange begins. But they're not the only ones that God can use as a key to your success. He can use people that aren't even saved and often does. Rahab. Uh, didn't have a covenant with God. But but here's one of the ways you begin distinguishing uh, when an unbeliever uh, might be uh, positioned by God for your benefit, and ultimately theirs too, probably. But if, I mean, Rahab didn't have trouble believing there was a God, had no trouble conceiving of the possibility, or for her it was a fact, that there was was a people of God, the children of Israel, uh, that he was taking care of and enabling. And she even defined him as creator of the heavens and creator of the earth. But she didn't have a covenant yet. She didn't know him, but she was interested in him. And that's always been an earmark for me. you know. And one of the conversation starters for me has been, oh, well, you're a pastor. Where do you pastor? What what do you... what makes you different than, than this group? And then we can get into belief systems a little bit and, uh, you, know, I can, you know, you can plant the seed of the Word. But I don't think you have to be a minister for that to occur. Uh, I think people will recognize something unique about you and uh, you can make sure they recognize it in the first couple of paragraphs in an uninvasive, non-manipulative way. Uh, and then Of course, that's likely to draw from them some comments about their views regarding God. And that's what we see with Rahab. She absolutely believed there was a God, didn't know him, was interested in him, and God used her in a big way. And so I wouldn't be looking just for key relationships in other believers He will use other believers more frequently than anyone else because that should be uh, definitive of the crowd that you hang out with anyway. Uh, But he will use people in the workplace that aren't saved, that don't know God. He'll use people in any walk of life that he can influence through you or probably already has made some strides in that direction Through other people. But at any rate, you need to know the difference between relationship and fellowship. Don't shy away uh, from relationships in favor of just people you can fellowship with. That's where the bulk of your time should be spent in terms of your interaction with others. But go places and do things that are filled with unbelievers and be friendly. And be somebody that is not too timid to meet people and smile at them, extend the love of God to them just by being interested in them, and he may open up something very supernatural for you when you do. The third thing uh, that is significant, I think, about relationships, for us to understand about relationships is that it's not only God who uses relationships, so does Satan. And so when a relationship happens to you (coughs) rather supernaturally, it may seem, don't assume that the supernatural source is God. And, you know, uh, be mindful of the fact that you're going to have to take a litmus test of relationships, you're going to have to make a judgment. Uh, We're not to judge people, we're to judge fruit. And we'll talk about the fruit you're to judge momentarily, but basically uh, you're going to have to distinguish between, you know, a godly source of influence and a demonic source of influence. And the demonic source never looks like a demonic source. It always looks pretty good. The Bible calls it good words and fair speeches. But, you know, um, I, you know I have a, a good friend who um, could give this testimony, I think, to a degree. Uh, but, you know, she, a single gal. Uh, stepped off a curb, almost got run over by a truck that had been parked but started up just as she stepped down. And the guy got out, and man, he was all uh, apologies, and then he saw that she was pretty, and so he said, hmm, it must have been God that had you step out in front of me. He must want us to meet. Well, that turned out to be the most demonic relationship you could ever imagine, and in, you know, in my humble opinion. And I am humble. But uh, it goes to serve the, the truth that you've you got to know what the source of influence is coming through a person. Is it Satan? Is it God? And there's some things that you can know. I mean, you know, you can use to help you know that. And the Lord said, you would know by the fruit in the Word of God, you're not to arbitrarily judge people, which we tend to do when we don't have enough information, especially to make any kind of valid judgment anyway. And you certainly can't judge by what other people say, because the Word makes it clear that good words and fair speeches can deceive the hearts of the simple. So what do you judge? You judge the fruit of a person's life. And it's not just anything that you might think is good. There's a particular kind of fruit that he says we need to judge. Look at John 10.10 for a moment. The thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Here's the God who is more, more than enough. There's no such thing as enough life. The word life here is zoe, the Greek word, and it actually is defined as the God kind of life. And, of course, God isn't one-dimensional. It's not just about eternity with God. Uh, there's also a qualitative consideration. It's called the God kind of life. Life as God has it, according to W.E. Vine's Expository Dictionary. That's what Jesus came to bring you. God Life as God has it. How does God have life? I mean, is he sitting on his throne with the sniffles or a cough right now? or? Is there a labor shortage in the angelic host and a strike going on? Or, Oh, come on. These things are just ridiculous. He has life in a way that he wants to impart to you. No sickness, no disease, no lack, peace, joy, contentment. I mean, all of these things are part of Zoe life. That's what Jesus came to give more abundantly. In other words, you will never have enough. There's always more than you have available to you of all the kind of life that Jesus came to bring. I mean, this also tells us if there's, you know, uh, if you lost something, it was unjust, it got stolen, you got manipulated, defrauded, whatever. If killing is involved, you know, uh, destruction of some sort, you know where it's coming from. It's coming from the thief. Don't let religion screw up your theology. Please. But that's not what I wanted to talk about. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth and the wolf catcheth them and scatters the sheep. So a wolf in scripture is symbolic of division. Scattering and dividing. That is the enemy's only strategy for slowing down or in his deceived thinking stopping Progress toward his destiny, which is the lake of fire. It's his only possible strategy. Jesus said a house divided against itself cannot stand. Plainly and simply, whether it's a literal house occupied by a family, whether it's the house of God, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of group you're talking about. If that group is divided, if it's a group of two, or 2,000, it doesn't matter. If the group is divided, then that house can't stand. Period. And so the only strategy for holding back the tide of believers that would, you know, continue expanding the kingdom of God and the earth is to keep it divided. Because a house divided against itself can't stand punch the person next to you and say, wake up, buzzo. No, that's a bad word. It's not a bad word, but it's an inappropriate word. Wake up, sweetheart. You're missing something important. Basically, we have the opportunity to understand that division is always the fruit that will identify the enemy whether it's a division of children from parents, wife from husband, church being divided down the middle, a country as divided as America is, right now, the influence that produces that division is demonic. And believers can yield to being used by the wrong spirit to exert and influence that is divisive. So this isn't something where, you know, uh, you can identify the source and therefore know what the problem is because you're not going to be able to tell by looking at anybody. Jesus said you would only know by the fruit. Let's take a look at uh, Matthew 7:15 for a moment. Matthew 7:15 says, Beware of false prophets. Well, this is not talking about the prophet's office. The word prophet simply means in the Greek to proclaim the word of God. So he's saying beware of people that falsely proclaim the word of God. A lot of people proclaim the word of God and don't live by it. A lot of people use the word deceitfully according to the word. They'll say something to someone they know is principled and making an effort to live their life right uh, on the word, and they'll use the word deceitfully to manipulate them into doing something they want them to do. They've got another purpose. And so he says, beware of people that are out there just because they proclaim a Bible principle doesn't mean anything. Good words and fair speeches can deceive the hearts of the simple. He said, they come to you in sheep's clothing, as wolves in sheep's clothing. I have to go read it to get the exact verbiage. Which come to you in sheep's clothing, beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Well, we know what a wolf does. He scatters the flock. So when Jesus says in the next verse, you will know them by their fruit. Mm -hmm. What fruit? What's the fruit of a wolf? He scatters the flock, creates division. Now, this isn't a person that's dedicated to being a wolf. These are really spiritual influences that emanate from the kingdom of darkness. And sometimes... A believer can be in a, not a good place spiritually perhaps, be subject to being used of the wrong inclination to, to prompt divisive influences in his circle of acquaintances. So this is not something that's limited to the enemy and you never can tell by looking at them. They're in sheep's clothing. They never look like a wolf. You never see any fangs sticking out. You know, one of the most divisive people I've ever seen in terms of the effect that she had on a church 30 years ago was a sweet little old grandmotherly lady that everybody loved, just so sweet, you know. And she really really was naturally very sweet, grandmotherish, but boy, could she ever sow seeds of discord. I am telling you, you'll know what she was operating by by the fruit she produced. And so essentially, the Lord's just saying, heads up. Just because they're proclaiming the word of God, they can falsely do that. Just because they are making good words and fair speeches, which will deceive the hearts of the simple. Just because they don't look bad, they look like a sheep. Don't be deceived by any of that eyewash. Jesus said, you'll know by the fruit. The fruit of a wolf is division. And so wherever division touches, and I mean, you know, it touches every organization, every family, and especially those that begin having a, an influence for the kingdom of God. You know, every one of them is going to encounter this divisive influence. Now, what you do with it is important. Being able to identify it and what you do with it is important. Acts 20, 28. Let's look there for a moment. Paul Paul also said this to churches, specifically pastors of churches. He says, take heed, therefore unto yourselves and to all of the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God. The word feed is poimano and it's the same root translated pastor in Ephesians 4.11. So we know that he's talking to pastors of churches that he's started or uh, that have been sponsored by the Lord under his tenure on this earth, he said, take heed to all of you, all of you that are pastoring churches which he hath purchased with his blood. For I know this, not maybe, not possibly, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock, not sparing the flock from what? What does a wolf do? Divides, divides and scatters. And he said, I know this. Every church will experience onslaughts of these kinds of divisive influences from time to time, and, you know, and he says that this is going to come from without because it says enter in, so these are influences that come from outside of church. The first thing that popped to my mind was the media storm that we went through back in the early 2000s, yeah. you know, uh. To cause people here to not want to be associated with me, sweet Matt. (laughs) And, you know, uh, not, you know, it was just a, it it was an influence that was intended to divide the body. And then, of course, uh, you know, from without could be a family member saying to you, hey, you're getting too radical on this Jesus stuff. Back off a little bit. Maybe you shouldn't go to that church. Go to a more moderate, reasonable church. You know, it could be that kind of influence. Could be, uh, but it's from without the church. There'll be influences coming that are intended to be divisive. But this is the one that's really interesting in verse 30. He says, Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. There'll be occasions, and there always have been throughout the history of this church, people that are raised up by the wrong spirit and promoting a ministry of their own that draws people out of this church to them. That's right. And, you know, it's really a sad thing. I saw one church couple of decades ago, uh, this happened. A guy that, you know, anointed young guy. Uh, you know, he good with words, good words, fair speeches. And he drew about half of a congregation to another location, started a church. But he didn't have enough sense to realize that he was doomed before he ever started. Because if you, if you have to start a church by splitting another church... Guess what kind of history your ministry is going to have? One division after another division, strife, and contention. And so, you know, he divides this church, and about a year later, his church divided, and he started another work, and that divided. Because you can't sow without reaping, it would be a mockery to God. So, you know, uh, but unfortunately, this kind of thing is part of the enemy's strategy. There's there's a lot of good people that have gotten sucked into this scenario. So we're not after people. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. But we need to recognize this kind of divisive influence at the earliest stage we can because otherwise it will produce uh, the, the result you don't desire. I mean, it's going to keep you out of your land of promise. God, through Rahab, protected and delivered. Had it been any other person in the city of Jericho, then Satan would have been able to capture and divide them off from their company, the children of Israel and keep the intelligence from getting back. It's always going to be necessary to identify division when it raises its head. Uh, Let's look at one last passage in Romans 16. So what happens when you, you bump into it? Romans 16, 17 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses, That's the wolf spirit that we're talking about. Contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. Everything about the word teaches us otherwise. Teaches us unity in one accord, one heart, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's the doctrine we've learned. So when you encounter those who are creating offenses and divisions, those always go hand in hand. He says mark them and avoid them. Marking is not public humiliation. It's not marking somebody publicly as a wolf. It is the word mark means to distinguish or make mental note of. So you make mental note of it when you see that this person always creates offense contention, strife, always there's this specter of division wherever he goes hanging over his head, then what do you do? You avoid him. You don't go try to talk to him and tell him how wrong he is. You don't go try to love him. It's interesting that the word says basically avoid him because it's a poisonous thing that will affect you. And, you know, I think also perhaps because the Lord's interested in getting him out of this profile of making, you know, causing division or strife, and it may be when he realizes that he's alone. He's been isolated. He might realize he's isolated himself and take a look at what he's doing. But, you know, I used to think to myself, I mean, this this is significant because you know, uh, the, the knee-jerk response to a religious mindset would be just love on him. Just go love on him. God cares about him. Let's, let's reason with him about what he's doing. No, that, it's likely that he will influence you in a negative way as opposed to you influencing him in a positive way. You know, that's what the Word says. Holiness is not infectious but unholiness is. And so this is the way you respond when you see those kinds of things. And then you know by the fruit. You can pick this up very quickly with somebody. It doesn't take more than two or three times with somebody and on a social basis, not even that long. And you'll see their effect on other people. And some of the people that you'll be, you know, judging the fruit of are believers. So don't, don't uh, fall into the trap of saying, well, they're, they're Christians. They, they're all right. Listen to them. I mean, are there uh, ways, their words, their relationships, you know, the things that uh, they are affecting other people in or is it is it divisive? But I mean, when you hang around somebody's husband and wife, you know, if they are divided, you better be careful because that thing can come your way. You know, girlfriends, guy friends for the guys, girlfriends for the girls, you better pick them carefully because I've counseled more than one a marriage that failed, you know, years back, that was solely because an outside influence had convinced her that she could do better than her husband. And, you know, and I've seen it work the other way too. So just be aware of the influences that produce division. Your kids are going to deal with them all of the time. And, you know, they're not not going to be mature enough to manage it at first. So you be sure. Other kids they're playing with, you know, while you still exercise that kind of control, what kind of, what kind of influence is coming their way?